0: You're listening to the Experience Sikhi Podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi Podcast. I'm Dilraj Singh. We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all the generations of people who have been, who have taken care of the land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the traditional territory of the Semiyamu, Katsi, Coquitlam, Kwantlen, Kakite, and Swasin First Nations. Also, just some reminders... If you guys like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at experiencethikey.com. Once again, that's podcast at experiencethikey.com. Our guest today is Badham V. Singh. Badam V. Singh was born and raised in Vancouver, BC. He was able to complete his bachelor's in behavioral neuroscience, master's in counseling, As of 2020, he practices as a registered clinical counselor with his own private practice, Atlas Counseling. He has been blessed to have been surrounded by Gursics throughout his life and continues to learn from them each and every day. In his spare time, you'll find him playing anything from basketball to board games to FIFA on PlayStation, in which his pro club's team boosted a rank of top 2%, boasted, not boosted, boasted a rank of top 2% in North America. So here's Parambhi saying, Welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm just uh, listening to my own bio. There can be a little weird sometimes, right? That
0: happens with a lot of guests. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a lot of self-boost, but the whole goal with the podcast is essentially just allowing someone to walk through your life. Mm. So they might come across challenges or similar experiences. And maybe handle it the way you did, because at the end of the day, you're now an established professional.
1: Yeah, I, I guess, I guess so. And maybe I, I'm more keen on sharing my mistakes to let people know not okay. what what not to do. Um, so maybe there's some learning there too. We'll see. <laughs>
0: awesome. So let's get straight into it. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself? Something about your passions, your hobbies.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. So, um, like you had mentioned, I'm born and raised in in Vancouver. Um, I um, I did uh, my education uh, in different areas and uh, different kind of uh, paths of careers. And the bio conveniently mentions only the relevant ones, mm-hmm. but I also had a short uh, gig with accounting and uh, some other stuff that a little unconventional. So if you, if you zoomed out and looked at the roadmap of my career, you might be scratching your head. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a part of what I like to explain sometimes to people. Um, that is not always a straight line. So, uh, a little bit about me as you will find is lots of ups and downs, curveballs. Um, sometimes even those passions might not add up. You got mm-hmm. a guy who's playing FIFA on PlayStation. Yep. Um, also, likes his Athletics and a little bit of this and that. Overall, I'd say I like to kind of try new things, even though it means I'm not very good at them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe that's a little bit about me.
0: Oh, that's awesome um we're gonna tap into your career and educational background as well um but one of the purposes with this podcast is also balancing Sikhi and our careers that as professionals we're still number 36 and we try building on that each and every day mm-hmm. so do you want to tap into what your journey into Sikhi looked like was it during your childhood your early adult years and how did you eventually come to the decision to take Amira?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah um I love reflecting on this because it, it just increases the the gratitude you, of how you got to where you were or how Maharaj allow you to get there, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's always relevant to start in childhood because for me, while Sikhi wasn't present, uh, so, sorry, while it was present, it wasn't pre- present how it is now. Mm-hmm. It really evolved on its way, and I'm sure it's evolved for many other Sikhs. Uh, But for me, the way it started was very kind of basic. I mean, my parents were into Sikhi, Mm -hmm. um, but being into Sikhi versus actively practicing it, I found can be kind of different sometimes, especially when you're raised as as a young child and you're learning things and you're not quite understanding sometimes why you do things. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a lot of my childhood in that sense that, you know, uh, I think it's, Typical in other South Asian households or Sikh households in which, you know, you've been told to do your part, told to do your mulmantar, told to keep your hair, mm-hmm. and just these other simple things, if you will, and not really told why. So I just kind of went along with it because uh, you knew it was good and you yeah. knew you'd fit in with the people around you doing it. Uh, but that didn't necessarily equate into an understanding. And sure, you can't expect a child to have that deeper understanding, mm-hmm. Um but that in itself kind of led me astray in my kind of early uh, adolescence, if you will. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I went from a boy who was very happy to just, you know, know the 10 gurus' names, go to my Punjabi class, um, just learn these little fun facts and, yeah. and, you know, have my jura on and do my thing to kind of, all right, uh, once you get into high school and others are questioning why you're doing what you're doing, it all of a sudden becomes a little reality check, mm-hmm. and uh, while you know the Surrey, Vancouver Lower Mainland area is, is prominently known for a lot of uh, sick immigrants coming yep. in the nineties, and the eighties, um, <clears throat> it didn't necessarily equate to them always being around. Yeah, like a, a young as a young thing in Vancouver, um, I went to an elementary school and a high school in which there um, there weren't many other sick's. Mm-hmm. I mean, even brown folks, Yeah, it was just, uh, um, they're culturally, they were sick, but I mean, they didn't really have practice it to a level that you'd see some youth practice it now, yeah. right? Um, so I got those questions, you know, why do you keep your hair? Um, why don't you eat meat? And those typical questions that you feel like if you, if you got uh, today, you'd be able to readily answer but yeah. back then oh boy mm-hmm. when you don't have an answer sometimes you look foolish yeah. and it leads to bullying and you know i think a lot of young sings ser- out there their fair share of having their kind of jude yanked off i mean that was me really <laughs> yeah yeah I, I laugh about it now because i realize the innocence behind the children who did that um hmm. but it didn't make make that journey any easier of course yeah so so Siki was was filled with hardships um of course uh, Siki in our history is always filled with hardships but that personal one really resonated in in, in adolescent youth that's for sure um from there uh, I did begin to kind of quote unquote stray from the path uh, because of that questioning it it The questions from people outside naturally lead to the internal doubt. Mm -hmm. So, with that internal doubt uh, came the resistance for me to kind of say, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing these things. So, it did lead to me, you know, trimming my beard, um, secretly eating meat. Sorry, mom and dad, I know you don't know that yet. And that's why I'm not going to share this podcast (laughs) with you. (laughs) But yeah, those things came about just to fit in. and again, there was no meaning behind why I did those things in the first place. So it felt like liberating almost to do that because I was, yeah. it was kind of like, hey, well, if I didn't know what I was doing in the first place, it should be okay to be doing it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that uh, came Guru Saib's Girpa in the sense that being ignorant to this also led to coming back into this path, but in a very different way. Yeah, it wasn't simply just about going to the gurdwara or seeing the same people that you do and just getting an epiphany. It was more of a, a really a big change in the on the sangat level. Before sangat looked like older uncles and aunties, really, uh, whether they're in your family or at the at the gurdwara, mm-hmm. uh, they're just older people telling you what to do. Yeah, and there's great value in that. Like now. I I would I can listen to uncles and aunties for days. Mm-hmm. Cause you realize and understand some of the beyond they're imparting imparting on you. Yeah. Back then, not so much. Uh back then it was more about seeking companionship, seeking connection, where just just where it's relatable. Just where you can look at the the person next to you and say, That person's doing it too. They kinda look like me, they're kind of the same age as me. Um, that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, And fortunately, with Guru sahib's Skirpa, that's, that's what I got through university. So just entering university, where was that, let's call it the rebellious phase. <laughs> uh, and after that was more of the kind of the awakening in, in which I was blessed to just take a plunge in, in joining the Six Students Association, just because why not? Yeah. Just to see what it was about. And um, it's funny, when I... <laughs> When I recall this story, I always, this tidbit comes to my mind. I always remember it because it just speaks to the, the real ignorance I had then. And I saw I saw a, supp- a couple of uh, guards that, that had the stars on. Mm-hmm. And the ignorant kid from Vancouver that I was thought, just auto-assumed they must be from India. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people can relate to why because it's back then – and was, it wasn't too long ago. We're still talking 10, 15 years. But for me, it was a rare sighting. Yeah. And if I saw uh, a Singhani with the star, you'd likely have seen that person before on TV or in India. So it was just, oh, she's from India. Yeah. I laugh about it because these people are my friends now. And I tell them that yeah. story and they go, what? Um, no, they were like, like when I joined those discussions at the SSA, uh, these people are exactly like me. They're better mm-hmm. than me, right? They, they had this kyan. You, you can tell that they had this special connection with Maharaj, one that I felt like I never accessed before, uh, one in which there was more of a personal relationship with Maharaj, mm-hmm. as opposed to one that was implanted in you. Yeah. And that's where it started for me. And I remember this one kirtan divan, just listening to the youth doing kirtan, it was just a vibe that I don't I don't think I've ever experienced in my life. And, and just connecting to that, like like when you go to the Gordor at that younger age, you're listening to the Raghi, you have no idea what's going on. Exactly. If, if you're me, yeah. you don't. But you're listening to, to youth doing it very passionately. Um, it just hit different. Mm-hmm. And from there, I was like, I want to be friends with these people. I want to get to know these people better. Yeah. And I want to I model what they're doing. So that's where I started to kind of do that more personal development in my Sikhi mm-hmm. and actually discover, wait, what is my relationship with Maharaj? Yeah. Can it be what, what these guys have? Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting um, because they would share the same teachings that you would get from the aunties and uncles when you are younger, yep. but you would digest it differently. Right? You're hearing it from a youthful perspective. You're hearing it from someone who has gone to the same trials and tribulations that you might have when mm-hmm. you were younger. So the way you understand that is now completely different yeah. and completely relatable. Um, so that's when that kind of spark hit of, okay, there's more to this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm rambling.
0: <laughs> no, this is perfect because a lot of it is, <coughs> especially as young six what I've realized is when you can see someone who's achieved something you want to achieve, it tends to motivate you because you see that it's possible. Um, mm-hmm. But no, that I, I think that journey for everyone, or it's important to know one another's journey because you also find, go to six, that um, have achieved the goals that you may have set for yourself or didn't know that you wanted to set for yourself. So for example, I was thinking when you just mentioned the, the star, um, the the start that they probably did go through similar traumas as you but they just had something inside of them that told them to keep pushing um but no that that's great so right now you're in your undergrad you've made these friends at ssa and personally i know taking a plunge into being blessed with amrit is very daunting mm-hmm. um did they play a role in expressing the importance of Amrit. How long did it take between you entering the SSA scene and then eventually, like Maraj doing enough getpa for you to be blessed with Amrit?
1: Oh boy, did they? <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would I would almost say Maraj used the vessel of of those like-minded go to six almost entirely in my influence to receive Amrit. Wow. Um, yeah, just because, and you know, I was reflecting upon this and it was in, in a kind of an unconventional way. Uh, typically, the stories I hear of people getting inspired from, uh, to take Amrit or follow the Rath involve a lot of encouragement, a lot of uh, love, and a lot of kind of uh, education. Um, while that did happen, mm-hmm. for sure, the ways I felt inspired most is when I felt the most uncomfortable. So I've transitioned... From friends who not into sicky at all. Yep. Um, they're not even brown, so completely removed from sicky. Not mm-hmm. that you have to be brown to be sick, but but just the way where I was, that wasn't the case. Um, I just found myself in a place in which I, I thought to myself, "What's stopping me from doing what these people are doing?" Yeah why am I not wearing a dastat yet? Why am I not keeping my hair still? Mm-hmm. Why am I not striving to learn how to read Gurbani? Why is this not happening? Um, and I had a couple of instances in which I was kind of quote-unquote called out on this and, and in, a friend, in, in a friendly way, but in a way that hit me hard enough to, to think that, you know, that was semi-serious. Yeah, I remember I was around a group of Gursiks and one of them, who oh, shall be unnamed, <laughs> um, is known to be very forthright and direct mm-hmm. with good intentions. And he said, um, hey, man, why do you cut your hair or why do you trim your beard? Yeah. I had no response from him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I sat there just dumbfounded. I said, I don't know. And everyone else was looking around. and I'm like, sorry, man, that's just this thing. You know, yeah. he likes it. He's a straight shooter. But he was right. Mm-hmm. I said, why don't I? And, you know, you think, I feel like this day and age, that could be easily interpreted as discouragement. Right?
0: Yeah, you easily get offended by a question like that.
1: Oh, yeah. It's just like, how dare you ask me? Exactly. Goodbye, I'm out. This is not piyat or whatever. But, yeah. But for me, it just struck differently. It was just, it was like up in its own way in that it just begged the question, why? I couldn't find a good answer. Another question I got, uh, like, as I started getting more involved in the Seva, I found myself getting more involved with these phenomenal, amazing Singhs who did Seva on Singh's camp, mm-hmm. which is really kind of the foundation of getting me towards receiving Amrit. And one of them, um, he just came up to me when, as we we're doing the Seva, and he went, why don't you have a gatra around your shoulder? Mm-hmm. Why isn't there a karpan there? I had no answer to, to that. I was practicing the Red. I was doing everything. Why didn't I? Yeah. Again, another one of those questions that it seemed like you're pushing someone to go to Amrit, but it was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this funny story that some of the Sings, Sings at Sings Camp of 2013 or 2012 it was, uh recall, in which um I'm sitting in Dharvar after there was hukum Hukum Namasaib and Prasad Di is being distributed in the Sangat. Um I am a non sitting there, and I <laughs> I put my hands out when the 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 thing distributing Prashad is giving it to the punjabiari first, and he just walks by me, and mm. I move my hands to where he's walking, and and I'm thinking, can this guy not see me? Yeah. And the thing next to me goes, just, just put your hands down. I'll, I'll tell you later. And he goes, you you know that part of the mariada is to distribute it to punjabis yep. first. And it was kind of embarrassing. <laughs> but again, another awkward, uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. that just pushed me towards Sikhi, yep. not away. So a culmination of these things basically led me to the point to say there's no reason why I shouldn't be taking Amrit at this point. Yeah. And Guru Sahib did Beyant Kirpa. Uh, and here I am uh, almost 10 years later in, in January practicing Amrita Adi not a good one, but I'm there.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, because I think that really demonstrates also the value that some of these camps really do have. As um, someone who's been to a few of them, mostly the SYF now experience a key camp, um, as both a non-Amritari and an Amritari, what I realized is as an Amritari, you feel like it's just another opportunity to hang out with some or with some Parchariks, do Seva, uh, could reconnect with Maharaj, have a bit of a reset but as a non-amritari the learning opportunities there are immense um i had a similar instance when during the experience of kismagam when i was an amritari a few years ago um i learned that like nishanchi seva can only be done by amritari sings too mm-hmm, yes and uh, again it was just a gentle reminder by a saying that like you know only an amritari can take on the seva and i think that's a blessing in itself that we looked at not getting that dig first and then also not doing Nishanji Seva as an opportunity to to dig a bit deeper and eventually take on those Sevas. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of it is just you want to be able to partake in things that the Sengs and Kaas have partaken in. Um, because it seems like it's exclusive to Amritadis, but there's reason for it, right? Yes. They've given their head to the Guru. So then we got to take that leap if we should be deserving of of that Paddhavi too or even taking on that Seva. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy listening to the stories of how people come and It's different for everyone, Mm -hmm. but to know that a camp can have that much impact and the different learning opportunities that come through, um, in a lot of the informal casual settings, I think is, is really, really underrated. Mm -hmm. Um, so after taking Amrit, you've also taken on a lot of Seva's and unique projects since then, um, in different camps. Uh, I know how camp used to be a big thing in BC. Um, so, how did you get involved in those after um, being a participant, and what did the seva that role look like? How was it different?
1: Yeah, hmm. um, yeah, I was I was blessed to 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 partake in those sevas, and it kind of really bridged from me receiving amrit because, like you said, once you're part of the army, you get to fulfill the duties. Yeah, right. That's a really and
0: good way to put it. I love. Yeah,
1: that. yeah. That. I, that I stole that from Bhaiji Singh, <laughs> and I remember that because uh, it it really made sense to me. Um, but that that job ja was there to go ahead and and seek those opportunities to do those sevas now that I'm eligible to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really fun, to be honest. Like if if I say the number one reason that that inspired me to do seva, I just I thought it was really fun to do what I was doing and to see others. Grow in a similar way that I did. Yeah, that was a big motivation for me. Uh, the 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 amount of kind of bliss you get from that journey is something that you would wish upon everyone else, right? Um, and being a part of this existing sangat who is already motivating me to do things like follow Rat, receive amrit, um, just be a better gursik made it very easy to join these sevas because mm-hmm. they were that much, o- like they were very open-minded to you being a part of those seva teams to fulfill those duties. So that's how I landed in sevas like Singh's camp and Rahal camp. Um, like you said, the camp is, is such an immense opportunity for each, each kursik to kind of further their personal development. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the theme of the Rahal camp. It was very reflection-based. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So doing those sevas uh again but it just brought that bought that personal prosperity. Uh, but also it was it was just uh, also about filling a gap. Not that other camps didn't exist. There are plenty of other amazing camps that mm-hmm. exist, but to do it in your own way is something different. Yeah. Right? And to allow people just more avenues to seek that laha is also something different. So while doing those sevas, I, w- I would say that just overall, like the people that I was with who allowed me to do it made it so easy and um, motivating just to continue to, um, to, to carry on as long as we did, um, which opened up other avenues there, like um, from camps, it inspires other people. Like Guru Kirpa, each camp, I can say that one person walked out as Namrtari that's, that's worth more than a camp, of course. If that happens. Mm-hmm. Um and from there, those in Code Six who were inspired from that started their own initiatives, which kind of creates this chain reaction of others to continue to, to get involved in different save us. Mm-hmm. So the amount of opportunities to save us were there. They were just limited and they they just branched off themselves and built connections with others. Community got bigger and then all of a sudden you find yourself with, you know, spoiled for choice with opportunities to do, Siva. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question there now, but that's uh, kind of my experience.
0: No, that's huge because at the end of the day, they're all opportunities to build on each other. Um, the people that do get inspired and create their own initiatives, there's a foundation that they found in your own project and they decided to build on it even further. So I feel like that's just a the in itself. And, and again, I'm using the word underrated a lot, but one of the underrated goals of these initiatives and camps because the whole point is building on these things. As six, we try building on our knowledge on our ta- all the time, on our ret. Um, and I feel like it's just another way of just building up prtjar. Um, So thank you for sharing your experience with the amazing Six that you were around, your journey into, the, into Sikhi. It's not always an easy thing to recount one's past. Um, along that journey, were there any role models that stood out and inspired you along the way? Um, or helped you move forward. You've already mentioned a few go that just prompted, um, this development through their questions. Are there any mm-hmm. others that you want to mention that really helped push that forward?
1: Yeah, I definitely say there, there were, um, or there are, I should say, because it's still around. Um, uh, first person that comes to my mind is my mamaji, who, you, it just one of those things that. When you're young and you've seen someone who's done it, it just makes it that much more inspiring or uh, motivating to go, hey, if they can do it, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was a person who practices Rath as a amritari sikh and was a professional in that he's a successful dentist. Um, and just seeing him do these things was just kind of, Infuse that kind of willpower and, and to to gain the ability to do the same. So I really would say he he was someone who kind of shaped the foundation of yes, it is possible, it is a thing, you mm-hmm. can do that, and you can do it with a smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was there. Uh, also in in 2013 at, at Singh's camp, I was really fortunate to to meet uh, Bhagaji, who needs no introduction. <laughs> um, but Bhagaji... Just, I think the uniqueness for me, for when I met them, uh, wasn't necessarily kind of your typical kind of inspiration by your standard red. You know, if you're talking about the SGPC Mariada or something, it's more of that this is the way you can live your life in the most unique, beautiful ways imaginable. Um, And you can be a flourishing sick to do that and you can be happy doing it mm-hmm. right a lot of the things that Babaji does I for one look at going that's incredibly difficult but the yep. way he presents what you do or what you should be doing like he says it'll make your zindagi funny Yeah. you have a great time this is this is great like eating the healthy parashadas he, he they make um, they go they, I I <laughs> one time I, I was having weather in BC. I, 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 when they came to BC after Singh's camp in about 2015, I'd go every other day just to see, you know, what Babaji has to say. Mm-hmm. And he goes one day Swaad lagya, And then went, in my head, I was like, Babaji, this is delicious. Yeah. This is actually really good and it's good for me. Mm-hmm. He made siki or he makes siki so fun. Yeah. And, but it's so good for you and usually the things that are good for you often aren't the best in terms of how enjoyable they are yep. but to do that just still blows my mind mm-hmm. um, so i would say he was like a core role model and continues to be as, as he is for millions of people around the world um, or yep. go to six um, so yeah yeah i definitely say he he's there
0: <laughs> for for those who don't know i think it's important to just provide some context buggy buggy just was one of vadhimapur sant gyanigurbhatan Singh ji students and um, they took on the seva of recording a lot of the katha that we now have of Purk, and have been teaching Santhya for for decades as long as i can remember dedicated their entire life to the prosperity of the Panth through um, through instilling that ad and and that puratan rat of how things used to live with such an utrasacha jivan and um, it seems so unachievable as people who have grown out in the West, um, but somehow they still made it happen with so many Chardikala um, six, And it's um, we're fortunate to have them in, in Ontario. I always forget that they spent some time in BC. Mm-hmm. I know there's this picture of their uh, they're huge on fitness. They they have um, there's a picture of their membership to Grouse Mountain and they used to love doing that hike, um, but that point. was just some context for for our listeners.
1: <laughs> I got a funny story about that. I was on one of those mm-hmm. grouse grinds, the and last one, the last one they ever did, to date, because you never know if they'll do one again. Yeah. Despite their health, I mean they're they're just something else. Uh, that was the grouse grind that Balbaji decided to do in eight hours. <laughs> And not because that's that was their physical limitation because they, they could do it really fast mm-hmm. for, for their age. Uh, but there was something different that day. Um, they just went really slow, and you would see them at each checkpoint doing this mini ardas as if they were kind of like blessing the mountain. Yeah, wow. I can't even describe what was happening, but it was just so much fun. We went till nightfall. The sun had set, and we were still climbing that. And when we got to the top, there was like this super moon. So there was some divine interplay going on there that yeah. I had no awareness of. But I'll never expect that, uh, forget that experience because the the multiple little lessons that they taught on that wave, that grind was just were just something else. I yeah, I thought I'd mention that because you mentioned the grout grind and yeah, no, that,
0: that's an unforgettable memory. I think. Um, <clears throat> It's something important to express because in today's world, we've now started to think of Sants and Mahapurks very differently. But at the end of the day, they're, they're teachers, right? And yeah. everything they do, well, one thing I've noticed is it's not just what they say, but it's what they do where you learn the most. Um, It's not, again, it's not just gany, it's Ghani. And I think Mahapurks like Pagaji really like Puri At-tardea, right? That they... Mm-hmm. They go all the way, and, and I, I don't know if it's intentional or un- unintentional, but it's just the way they live, the way they hold themselves, the way they do certain things where 90% of the lessons come from. And then the 10% that they actually say with their parmanans is just tying it all together. Yeah. Um, no, thank you so much for sharing. I, I love hearing <laughs> stories about mothfucks in general. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit now. That was your journey into Sikhi. Um, You have a very unique journey into becoming a clinical counselor. Um, so where did you study and work over the years and how did you eventually land where you are now as um holding your own practice in clinical counseling?
1: Yeah, it's just uh always kind of a fun one for me again to talk about because I meant as I mentioned previously, it wasn't a straight line by any means. Yeah. Um <clears throat> for me, like counseling was when I was younger was was just something that looked kind of appealing. Because in the movies it seemed fun. Yeah, right? you're just talking to someone for a living. And you just you a found that time. fun? Yeah, yeah. Cause interesting. I, yeah, I guess I guess when you see someone lying down and just you know in in the movies, you uh, I give this example to my clients a lot when they when I try to dispel the myth of counseling. But in yeah. the movies, you'll see someone lying on a couch and another and the therapist just telling them to kind of just keep talking about their lives or mm-hmm. their dreams or whatever. I just found that hey, if I'm getting paid to do that, it seems like a Quite an interesting career prospect. um, Besides the fact that you know, I just like talking, Mm -hmm. uh, as you could tell. Um, But it was just that, though. It was just kind of an afterthought. Seemed like maybe a backup career. I don't know Mm -hmm. because the number one career, of course, was to become a doctor. Yeah. Um, And I probably don't need to tell many of the young, younger Brown. Uh, listeners why because uh, a lot of our parents had big ambitions for us yeah Uh, and that was no different for me Um, so that was the real goal or the sorry the original plan was to get your degree in some sort of science and write the MCAT and off you go Uh, it wasn't till third year in which I put my foot down and I went excuse me my my MCAT's in a week uh, I couldn't find any other place to book it, so I, I'll i go to Edmonton. Wow. But a week before I went, I called my mom and said, you know, I kind of don't want to be a doctor anymore. Can I not write this? Mm-hmm. And you could probably imagine how that went. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah how, did, how did it go?
1: You, you know what? As I said that, I said that jokingly, you would think it would have been a little hostile or met with, uh, <clears throat> some unfriendly behavior, uh-huh. but, uh. It was not bad. It was at first like, dude, thanks for telling me a week before. We could have avoided this, you know, a long time ago. Um, But overall, my my mom was very supportive and my dad, too. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I was very fortunate in that in the many career paths that I had, they kind of just sucked it up and went, okay, but if you want to try something else, we can go for it. But like, think about it this time. Don't just do something. So after I had left that path, you're kind of in that weird spot there where you've invested everything into medical school. You don't want to do it anymore. And there's no tangible career that comes out of that. Yeah. Um, so I went into research Did that for about a year, grateful for that experience, not up my alley again.
0: Did you end up finishing that degree? That first one? I did. So the
1: behavioral neuroscience degree I got is what I did finish because I was actually like genuinely interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. Um, But the research that came along with it, especially, you know, testing lab rats and whatnot, just not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's why I kind of strayed away from that. Um, And then I went to accounting. So that was just like a big left turn. And my reasoning behind that was all right, there's already like a couple of years down the drain for not doing this medical route. Yeah. Why not just. Go into a stable job that gives you solid income with good hours, and you can just enjoy life outside of what you do for a living mm-hmm. and I did that for about three and a half years, and boy was I miserable. It was just convincing myself that no, it gets better from here yeah. it'll it'll be fine, you know just because you're sitting at your computer all day doesn't necessarily mean. What you do after work won't be fun. And I was overcompensating like Mm -hmm. that. I would find myself, you know, doing very kind of outlandish things, you know, let's try rock climbing today or let's uh, do this other extreme thing the other day just to kind of make up for that dreadful job that I'd walk into. And no Mm -hmm. disrespect to accountants, I should probably say that if it's for you, it's great. I know plenty of amazing accountants (laughs) who actually like what they do. Mm -hmm. I did not. I couldn't fathom it. So I had to kind of <clears throat> pull my socks up, um, suck it up again and go to my parents and go, by the way, you remember that accounting thing I did? Yeah. Same over the medical school thing, different context. And, you know, thank Guru Sahib, they went, okay, mm-hmm. well, you know, if you want to do it, we can change around again. Um, and that was a real big leap of faith because I'm 27 at this point, mm-hmm. And a lot of the youth I talked to, they think of twenty seven for some reason they think it's old <laughs> no, I personally don't doesn't <laughs> oh, to say, okay. you're a really young professional oh, oh, oh good for you, yeah, yeah, I mean as you shouldn't, because when you hit my age, um, it doesn't seem too bad yeah um, but uh I can see how to some people say, you know I'm too deep in to make any drastic changes. I just have to go through whatever what with whatever I've committed to yeah but Guru Kirpa uh, something inside of me said, you know. Uh, I can't do this for the next 30 years in good conscience. It doesn't make any sense. So I ended up taking that leap of faith to counseling, which is always in the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. Career-wise, best thing I could have ever done. This job, I can see myself doing more than 30 years. It's wow. such a wonderful thing to be doing. And the schooling itself was like a, it was kind of like um, so revolutionary on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I change, way I, uh, sorry, the way I—sorry—the the way I thought, the way I spoke, the way I acted—all changed to that two-year course of that master's degree, because uh, a lot of it is about introspection, how you see yourself. Kind of, it's kind of like you have to counsel yourself through the studies before yeah. you can counsel someone else. So I was really grateful for that, and that's what ended up—that's uh, how I ended up where I was, and more importantly, that's how I ended up happily being where I was. That's kind of an insight to my journey, and just a an, again just a note to other listeners out there, especially young ones it it actually isn't too late mm-hmm. like to make those changes, you know late twenties early thirties, if it means pursuing the passion that you feel like you haven't able to achieve yet or tap into, yeah it's just another opportunity and 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 the time that that you may think you've lost like I can easily say that, oh, I wasted those three years being an accountant. Mm-hmm. I can do my own taxes now. Yeah. I, I, I have a basic understanding of finance. Mm-hmm. Those skills really came in handy. And I found that employers, when they called me out on that, uh, it just led to a s- story that was more inspiring than it did that, oh, this guy seems a little flaky or yeah, we exactly. should give him the job. So, so yeah, so, so go for it is what I'm trying to say.
0: I did want to bring it back to to one question. When you decided to take Amrit, was there any pushback from your parents? Sometimes youth do um, experience a bit of hesitation from their parents' side because they're like, oh, some of the typical conversations are like, or maybe you can mm-hmm. wait until you're in your mid-50s, yeah. and then it's a better idea. Was there any pushback, or were they just as supportive as they were in your career changes?
1: There were pushbacks. Okay. Uh, it it was ironic because my dad is was one to always m- encourage me to take Amrit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When was the question, though? Yeah, It's that typical, when you get older, when you get more developed in your career, yep. in your life, then take it. Not now. You can't handle it. Yeah, um, Which is fair point. I could see it from parents. I see from a lot of other parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the question comes in, you're not guaranteed those breaths, yeah. And, and my parents ne- never had exactly. an answer for that. And it's about taking that leap of faith and 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 allowing Guru Sahib to be your parent at mm-hmm. the end of the day. And guess what? You know, I I in my experience, I have rarely heard parents end up ending up not being happy after their child receives Amrit. Very true. Uh, there will be pushback. There will be a little bit of resistance, but when they see how much Guru Sahib makes you into better character, that it turns out to be fine and good Good about my parents are fine too. And if any, anything it's, it's motivating them. So yeah.
0: that's awesome. Um, back to your career. Why did you pick clinical counseling specifically? Because in general, the, the science med, whatever field you want to call it, it's abundant with, with the number of paths you could take. Mm-hmm. So why clinical counseling specifically other than your love for what they did in movies?
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, that's a good question. Um, for me it was really shaped by my personal experiences with friends who were having a tough time so mm. when asking myself this question not only why should i do it or why do i think i'd be good at it which is a different question yeah. right? um i reflected back upon what kind of wh- what part of the job i would like and i found that i genuinely love to hear my friends and family talk about themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just find it interesting. I don't think I'm very fascinated with myself. Me talking about this podcast might be contradictory to that, I realize. But like genuinely I love hearing people's stories. Mm-hmm. I love seeing them overcome obstacles in which they didn't think they'd have the courage to do. Yeah. And i I came across a couple of friends who were I would venture to say clinically depressed. I make that distinction because...
0: what is What does that mean when we say clinically? Even being a clinical counselor, what does that clinical mean?
1: Clinical implies that you have this kind of formal backing or training okay. um, in the work you do. So in a clinical environment, like, okay. you know, a clinic is a place where patients come and receive treatment. Yep. Um, Much in the way that... Uh, if you're clinically doing something, you're doing it with some sort of expertise. Okay. Um, um, clinically depressed um, would be distinct from just feeling depressed. So, hmm. so you can have depressive symptoms, meaning you can feel very down, you can lack motivation, um, and you know when when some people say that they're depressed, they really mean they're just not having a good day or a good mm-hmm. time. Clinically depressed is a set of criteria that entails a diagnosis you have mm. to have five or six things that you meet these characteristics that you that you're going through that uh, define it as per the um dsm-5 per se mm-hmm. so when i say clinically depressed i mean someone who's going through just as legitimate to struggle but they yeah. have these accompanying symptoms Got it. um so that's an, that's a really important question because that can be very con- easily confused with the normal depression term um anyways um I saw that my friends were struggling, and, and I just thought, you know, maybe maybe they just need some sort of support in some way, and not, not like I was a counselor then, so I wasn't doing clinical work. Yeah I was just listening. I was just trying to, you know, make up solutions of what they can think is better, whether that was like playing NHL 2013 with them, or just sitting there if they needed to cry or go for a walk, you know, just mm-hmm. things that anyone can do. Yeah. Um, I went, geez, when, 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 when some of these people really overcame their ob- obstacles, it was just, it felt so right. It felt like there needs to be more of this. And it didn't feel like it was too hard on me to be in the receiving end. Cause sometimes it can be yeah. when you're a caretaker like that, a mm-hmm. caregiver rather. Um, so that's kind of what drew me in because I saw that there's something that existed there inside of me, um, in my personal life. I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to professionally pursue it.
0: Amazing. Um, I know when we spoke earlier, one thing you mentioned was, um, sick history is a lot of helping on a large scale and clinical counseling allows you to help one person very well. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to expand on that what did you mean uh, how does that play into your your profession
1: um, so I guess what I meant by that was like when when I traditionally thought of Sikhi I really thought of it as six and our really strives to help people uh, on a very large scale and I mean that's not what it only does but from my experience, you know, you see Seva going every corner of the world to mm-hmm. help people. Uh, you're seeing the panth flourishing and this emphasis on Sangath, yeah. meaning this collective healing in a group uh, dynamic. And that was amazing. And it could also do this individual personal work too. And in my experience, I found that for some reason, I feel like this is really needed. I feel like people really need that outlet to just really express themselves and have that attention mm-hmm. to do so. Um, mm-hmm. That's what attracted me. And when I said I, I, I'm fond, fond of helping one person really well, it, it really kind of means giving that person all you got to help them and focusing on them to make them feel like they're belo- they belong somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so counseling is is an outlet that allows for that, right? Because it's often one to one therapy. Yeah. There's one person given that 50 minutes hour time to express whatever they'd like, and I feel like that's a rare opportunity these days. I don't feel like people have the patience. I don't want to generalize that, but I feel like it is it's it is hard to find that space mm-hmm. to allow yourself just to express all those really vulnerable feelings to one person for that long. So to help them develop in that way, that's what I kind of meant by helping one person really Mm -hmm. well. I'm not sure if I made that clear, like if my explanation of that was clear, but that's the idea I'm getting at.
0: Awesome. So um, before we move on, a recurring theme in conversations in youth is the struggle to balance key with school. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you go about managing this challenge? Because you've done a lot of schooling up until this point versus someone who might have be having the struggles in something as short as a three-year college diploma program. Um, so how did you go about ma- managing this challenge, and what lessons did you learn through that academic experience?
1: That's uh, so another really great question. Uh, I think um, throughout my years of schooling, I've, I'm going to agree by saying that, yes, it was incredibly difficult sometimes to, mm-hmm. to manage both things um, because in the beginning my perception was that for some reason these are two kind of unrelated things. You either get to practice your sikki or you either devote your time to schooling. And that seems intuitive, right? You only have time to do one mm-hmm. thing. Uh, but as I progressed in my schooling, uh, Maharaj implanted this idea that these things can go hand in hand. Um, they don't necessarily have to be this uh, one or the other deal. Um, I found that doing your name helps you. Like if you do it in a way in which you know you're you're listening to it, you understand some of it at least um, for your own personal development and spiritual development mm-hmm. helps you in your schooling. Now, for me, it helps being a counselor because part of the work that I do can involve discussing sikhi, people's own personal sikhi. Mm -hmm. Um, But for just the study portion of it, uh, I would find that, you know, we need self-care. We need measures to help ourselves grounded so we can do this rigorous schoolwork, Mm -hmm. right? You know, know, when you're pulling those all-nighters, when you're writing those essays, you're doing those exams— If you don't give yourself those breaks and that time to just decompress, uh, you might have a bad time. That's when the energy shrinks start popping out and all that stuff. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if your your nithanaim is looked at your break or your time to decompress or your gut guys, or your um, going to sangat, all these things, like as Mara says countless times, are there to help you relieve Mm -hmm. your anxiety, right? um feel uh empowered yeah Um, so it does go hand in hand so that that's what i felt like was changing that's how the balance was allowed is to see it as something that is part of schooling Mm -hmm. it's not something distinct or separate from that
0: yeah i find that very cool because another thing you mentioned when we spoke last time was the fact that a lot of these struggles branch into your career as well um that's a misconception I've had for a very long time as in once your career set, I'm going to have all the time in the world. Um, but I'm also realizing now that a lot of students I talk to, just getting their career in place, they have those 12-hour days. They have those, you know, seven-day weeks. Um, so maybe it's not as easy as just getting a job and then just the key lines up. Um, it is a lot about perspective and, and thinking of it as uh, something that helps you rather than something you have to do
1: yeah totally uh,
0: in yeah. terms of your experience as a clinical counselor you've mentioned that it's a 50 minutes 10 hour slot talking to people um is that it as a clinical counselor how do you initiate those conversations what do you do with those conversations after
1: mm, yeah so that is kind of the bulk of the work but my no, no means all of the work okay um if you're looking for like a kind of how that process is, I can elaborate sure. on on what that looks like. So, uh, getting into therapy isn't like or being in present in the session isn't necessarily the first step by by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, reaching out in itself can be very difficult. It's almost uh, an ask to yourself to be very vulnerable, a commitment to say, "I'm going to tell potentially some really personal and deep things." to a stranger uh, in hopes that I'm gonna feel better. Now, if I pitch it like that to someone, not many people are gonna be waiting front of the line to do that. So the barrier there is just reaching out for the help is is a big step in itself. Mm -hmm. So often when clients email me or call me or however they reach out to me, they'll say, you know, this is my first time, I don't know what to say, I don't know how to start, Um, I don't even know if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. So it'll start off with just gauging where they're at and meeting them there. Okay. So I'll have a brief consultation call to see what their needs are for them to get to know me. Because as important as it is for them to vibe with me, I would need the kind of same relationship on my end for the therapeutic relationship to work. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the initial steps is get laying the groundwork for that and establishing that connection. Uh, most of the times, you know, it'll it'll be good. Sometimes you might find, you know, it's not an appropriate fit, but that's not the end of it because there's plenty of other amazing counselors out there. Yeah. Um, then you would get into more of the kind of deep work of sessions and seeing the clients regularly, whether that be weekly, bi weekly, sometimes monthly. Mm hmm and on the outskirts of that is you know your your case notes your your research on how to help them mm-hmm. maybe seeking supervision um peer supervision um other medical professionals like their general practitioner their mm-hmm. occupational therapist um these kind of other things that are going around in the background all contribute to to the therapy it's yeah. not simply Come on in. Let's talk. See you later. Mm-hmm. Even that, um, I'm fond of um, at the end of the session, assigning my clients this kind of homework assignment, in which they're applying what they're they're learning mm-hmm. outside into their real life. Because one of my beliefs in therapy is, as much as it is seeking that help in the space, it's about growing and independently uh, seeking out those skills outside of the space. Mm-hmm. Cause Ultimately, they're there, so they they can be fine at their home, not yeah. just to be fine in in, in the therapy. Mm-hmm. So lots of things going on, uh some of them Very enjoyable, cool. some not <laughs> uh, but overall it's uh, it can be a little bit more involved than it seems.
0: You mentioned um an intersection with other medical professionals, um whether it be their general practitioners, et cetera. How much of that is them referring patients to you? versus you just coming across one of their patients and then having to work with them?
1: Hmm. I think largely for my private practice, um, it's more of referrals coming from them. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, and from there, maybe word of mouth spreading. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean there are cases in which uh, I will actively go out and to the uh, medical professionals mm-hmm. to discuss their case, um, but it's it seems to be a little bit more more one sided in that way. Okay. And the reason why I think that is is because having a family doctor is something that's been around for centuries. Yeah. Right. Um, it's a very standard practice. There's a little to no shame sometimes around doing that. Yeah. Coming to a counselor it can be a little little bit of a different ball game. Mm-hmm. It's unfamiliar, so you wouldn't see the kind of the other way happening too much. Yeah. Um. As you would th- them coming to me, if that makes sense.
0: Okay. Um, in terms of your experience so far as a clinical counselor, is there one part of the job which you feel like is the best part and something you look forward to all the time every day you're in the office?
1: Yes, I think, um, for me, it's, it's those moments where you, where you pick up when the client has realized their change, their improvement, their success, Mm -hmm. uh, there's no greater joy to me in the job than seeing that. Not because I feel, I feel accomplished. Yeah. I just love seeing people feel the way they do when they realize they have the ability. Mm -hmm. Um, It's yeah, there's nothing can really replace that. So I would say that's pretty much number one for me.
0: That's amazing. Um, One of the things you mentioned before we started was you're not much of a talker. You're more of a listener. How much of being a clinical counselor is being a listener And when you do engage yourself in the conversation and you begin talking, what's your main contribution? What are you adding to the conversation?
1: I I really like this question because it it can kind of dispel some myths about counseling. Um, I I wouldn't say that there is this standard formula of counselor should be talking X percentage and client should be talking Y percentage. Mm -hmm. It really depends on the relationship you have. Clients come in, and they request the counselor to be more directive, yeah, more the talking, ask me questions, I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. other clients they go strap in, I'm about to tell you my life story mm-hmm. and in the beginning, that's what's needed, yeah, um so it really depends on where the client's at with their, and my philosophy is to always have that client be in the driver's seat. I'm just the passenger that might be suggesting some different routes, not mm-hmm. even suggesting. Asking questions so clients can consider other routes. Yeah. Right. Because there's a that distinction between coaching and counseling, right? Coaching mm-hmm. is purely directive. Like yeah. based on what I know, here are the things that you can do. To me, counseling is more of a, you know, let's let's discover what you what your context, or your perspective on life is right now, and mm-hmm. let's explore other avenues through questions. Yeah. Um and I firmly believe all the, cl- the clients are the experts of their lives. They have the answers. Mm-hmm. You rarely find me saying, do this, do that, um, unless it concerns safety. Um, that's just because, I, I, again, I really believe that they have that ability, and um, they'd be really surprised when they figured out, you know, I'm just asking the questions, you've got the answers. So um, that depends. And it also depends on kind of the demographic, too, yeah. like, like upperney or um brown folks general uh especially older brown folks um culturally they just they're used to you know doctor side what do i do yeah right many of them call me doctor if i tell them repeatedly i don't have a doctoral doctoral degree like i'm not a doctor yeah. at some point you just take it and they go bomb look people call me doctor are you happy now <laughs> uh, but uh um they, to them, tr- treatment or help is just tell me what to do. So there's yeah. a big barrier then that's, well, that's not my job. So, how do I navigate that? So, you got to be a little different there, right? You got um, how to know how to question in different ways. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a, the answer to that, I suppose.
0: Has that been one of the biggest challenges as well? Just um, navigating through that stigma? Or the expectation of when you go to a counselor, especially in our community.
1: Definitely, I definitely would say so. It's it's up there because it's not taught in school. At least the schooling I've got. I mean, there there's there. You have your chapter on cultural, culturally relevant counseling, but that yeah. doesn't fit the bill of how that works in practice. Um, uh, sorry to say it, but much of the evidence based treatments we have have been based on the the West, right? Um, there is that spirituality and mindfulness component that's borrowed from the East, mm-hmm. but most of it, like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, um, <clears throat> motivational interviewing, you can go on and on, really involve this idea of introspection, which can be a very individualistic process. Yeah, something that for us can be foreign because. We're very group-minded, like, mm-hmm. we care about everyone, right? This, is, this issue just isn't about me, it's about my dad, my mom, my brother, my sister, etc. And I haven't really just discovered that for myself. It's not even a thing. Like, mm-hmm. If you try asking an auntie that comes in, you know, um, how do you feel about so-and-so's thing? That's not like what does that mean? To yeah. them, right? So, so how do you go about that? Um, so I would say that's, that's been a really big challenge.
0: I was going to ask this question a bit um, later, but again, there's stigmas around counseling and getting help mm-hmm. in general that exist within the South Asian community. Do you think of it as part of your job to help remove those stigmas and not just for your clients, but in the community um, at large? And if, if you do feel like that, how, how are some of the ways you go about it?
1: I think that's my social responsibility Okay. In the sense that, you know, counselors should have that mentality and approach. Mm-hmm. I don't think necessarily it's part of the definition of a clinical counselor. Okay. But it, it does help me, so why not? Yeah. And helps helps our community, so why not? Mm-hmm. Um the yeah, this st- I, the way I approach in kind of a destigmatizing is one to really emphasize those burning questions as anyone else gonna know? And this isn't gonna go on my record. Um And as obvious as might see to people in the field, outside, people just don't know. And they're rightfully concerned. I wouldn't want anyone knowing some of that information either. So just emphasizing confidentiality, the strictness of that, um, and the fact that, no, it doesn't go on this mysterious record that won't allow you to get your job 10 years down the road. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's part of it. And the other part is just the process. Talking and and showing that empathy and engaging with the client, in itself can be de- destigmatizing because mm-hmm. you're normalizing everyday problems. Yeah, right. A lot of people come in, and their questions are, you know, am I am I lost my marbles here for thinking this way? And it'll be things that you think to yourself, going, I'm right there with you. I'm thinking this every other day myself. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make anyone here kind of crazy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. They're normal things. They just need to be. You just need to hear them. Mm-hmm. You need someone to tell you, and it helps when that someone is a professional, as opposed to your neighbor, your friend. Mm-hmm. So that that helps in the destigmatization of of this.
0: Very interesting. That was going to be my second question: is why is it important to reach out to a clinical counselor? But I think you've answered that in terms of again it being a professional. I'm gonna I'm gonna tap into that a little bit. Why a professional over someone like a neighbor?
1: I think there's a couple of reasons there. One, the professional has the training that's proven to help people. While you're someone who isn't trained in it, might have things that have helped. Yeah. They also might have things that, in certain contexts, contexts is, sorry, I bet, in certain contexts could not help or be harmful. Mm-hmm. Right. If for person A, um, they say, you know, I do ten push-ups every morning, and it's great for me and helps me feel good. You should do that too. Uh, Person B might go, "I did that. I overexerted myself. That didn't work." Yeah, right. And that and and that that could have been valid advice, right? Uh, A counselor um, kind of is has goes in with a perspective that you know there's not this one fit all solution. Mm -hmm. It depends on the person. Let's borrow to their strengths. And let's look at what doesn't fit with them. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the professionalism there, right? Yeah. It's, it's it's not intuitive really to do that in your everyday conversation. You're going to say, you know, this works for me, I'm going to do it. Yeah. A- end of story. Um, the other thing is that um, there's a liability piece too, right? Uh, where, where our job, the reason we can be empathetic and uh, do the job well is because we're bound by a code of ethics. Your neighbor's not bound by that code of ethics. Mm-hmm. They're bound by their own moral compass. Exactly. Which doesn't, f- if that doesn't fit with you, it could lead to some problems. Mm-hmm. And it could also lead back into that stigma, right? Yeah. You all of a sudden tell your neighbor that you have the problems and the neighbor is just too tempted to tell the other neighbor. Mm-hmm. You're in a vulnerable position there. There it goes the it.
0: confidentiality.
1: Exactly. So, So those are just a couple of reasons why I feel like it's really important. To make that distinction between a professional and just a friend and but that's not to say your social circle plays a big part in your healing mm-hmm. and, and that shouldn't be undervalued
0: amazing um what type of people come to clinical counselors so um are there certain traits or circumstances that might make someone more likely and the reason why i ask this is again breaking down that that stigma putting yourself in certain situations that Helps you get more comfortable with the idea that you know counseling is good for me, and Mm -hmm. uh, the benefits will outweigh um, the potential cons you have set in your mind by a long shot.
1: Yeah. um, So to answer that first question, anyone can come to counseling. Unfortunately, I think society or the media or whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. has painted this picture that. Someone who is behind in life or lacking certain skills. Yeah. Or just not well off it, are the candidates for counseling. Mm-hmm. The rest of everyone else is fine. I find that can't be further from the truth. I feel like counseling, while its main purpose is to help with someone's declining mental health, it is also helps to, to sustain someone's good mental health. Mm-hmm. You can look Wow, for, very interesting. Yeah, yeah right? you never yeah. hear that. You don't, it's not promoted. I try to make an effort to promote that, that mm-hmm. counseling is just not about coping. It's about prevention as much as it's about coping. Yeah. Um, it's about bettering yourself even if you think you're in a good place, right? You've got to keep yourself there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really kind of opens a whole new avenue as to why you can come out to counseling. Mm-hmm. The only condition to me to, to see a counselor is to be curious about yourself. That's it it doesn't matter what's going on in life mm-hmm. whether you're going through grief and loss uh whether you have troubles managing anger there's family conflict whatever it is just the requirement is just to be curious about yourself and be a little bit vulnerable in the beginning mm-hmm. if that even because some people come in saying i will tell you literally anything in my life mm-hmm. i've had clients give me powerpoint presentation about their life wow um it just shows how committed they are to be the best people they can be. So, um, yeah, counseling for anyone.
0: That's awesome. That removes so much stigma already because I think, again, it, it might have shown up in the movies and shows that inspired you, <laughs> but a lot of it is you feel like you're so far gone and this is the only way to work your way back. Yeah. Um, I've, I personally haven't even thought of counseling as something that can help you retain good mental health. Because I've always thought of good mental health as being something you you build on your own, mm-hmm. right? It's like a, it's like a safe keep almost that you don't share with anyone else. Um, but I think that's just my limitation in thinking that once you achieve a certain level of good mental health, you can't build on that, or mm-hmm. you can't keep it there. That it's a you know it's a um, it's a whole job in itself of just keeping yourself there. Yeah. Um, so amazing insight. I'm 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 so glad that this is coming out because. As, as someone who's a young adult, now my perspective is completely changing about uh, who might be going to a clinical counselor. Um, going off of that, what you're able to do for a client, has there been a moment in your career so far where you thought to yourself or you felt that this is why I did it all? It was all worth it, right? In, the, in that one moment, um, have you had that kind of epiphany or that like like, thank you, like, Thinking yourself that, you know, you made the right choices and you finally got here, and this is why I became a clinical counselor.
2: Hmm.
1: I'm, I'm not sure if I have, to be honest. It's a very interesting question. Um off the bat, there's no particular kind of defining moment that that strikes out mm-hmm. as as being that kind of, hey, this is this is what, what it's all built up to right yeah kind of that started from the bottom now we're here type of thing <laughs> Exactly. Uh, it's more of been kind of just small meaningful interactions yeah um that just reinforce that you know this is this is my destiny if you will mm-hmm. um whether it's being reflecting on how miserable i was as an accountant mm-hmm. or it's yeah. being that seeing that one person overcome that obstacle it kind of just adds up in small parts mm-hmm. and it's not until uh an amazing person like you steps back and asks me that question that I think, this basket's getting bigger and bigger every day. It's yeah. getting more full, right? So I would say it's those smaller moments that add up. Um, but if there is an epiphany, I'll let you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I love how you just mentioned that even looking back and realizing you didn't like accounting, um, when I ask that question, it comes with the intention that it's within your career. And that, that just broke another, um, it unlocked a new level where some of those moments are are just, they're all over. It's not just in your daily job, but they might just be looking back at your journey so far. Mm -hmm. Um, As someone who offers so much help to so many people, um, do you ever burn out? And and burnout doesn't have to necessarily be like, like I'm just done with the work, but do you ever feel like during the course of a day where you've just taken on so much and you just got to sit back?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There there are moments of burnout, um, just because if you look at what what the job entails, it's a lot of listening, and in addition to listening, it's about that response of tapping into empathy mm-hmm. and being a human being, and especially being someone you know who myself just you can't always hundred percent be empathetic to the T at every living moment. It's just almost, I feel like physically impossible, not because you don't want to be is because it requires resources, right? Like, yeah. Not just physical, mental ones. And, and when you start thinking of yourself and your own hardships and struggles, it can kind of take away from who or what is in front of you. Um, so there's limits there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to tend to that burnout. Um, otherwise, uh, you can't really go for too long. So I, I would say that they're there and there's been those days, but nothing close to that, you know, I'm out. Like with yeah. Nothing like that. Um, it's just something to be aware of.
0: How do you recover or prevent okay. those, those burnout phases? And do you also now get help or do you help yourself?
1: Um, recovery from... That well, sicky is is huge there, um. Just like as I mentioned with school, it goes hand in hand. It's no different with my job, especially for my job. Um, it uh, just taking those breaks, setting boundaries for your own work. They're they're not much different come from your typical job, right? If yeah. you Work too many hours, you know if you're working too much or not, right? Like even if I was an accountant, it'd be no yeah. different. Um. So there's that. Um and yeah, getting help myself. I see a counselor. I have no shame in saying that. And my clients go, "You see a counselor," and they're uh, and I find it amusing that they're mind blown by that because yeah. it's that idea of my counselor sees a counselor. But we wouldn't <laughs> we wouldn't uh, look twice if you said my doctor sees a doctor, right? Huh. Would you? Yeah, I'm assuming you wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, it's just because you can't counsel yourself. I've hmm. tried. I failed miserably. Counseling is a dialogue. Yeah. Right. Having a dialogue with a, your own mind is well, it's just good luck. Yeah. Right? Yeah. To see it happen. So, and and I'm not afraid to say either that you know my it's not like I go for, to counseling for this very dire issue. Um, and the, again, nothing wrong if you do, but for me, it's that personal development. Mm-hmm. I want to be on the other end of the chair there. I want to see what my client experiences. I want to kind of be curious about myself, my Mm -hmm. own spirituality. Why don't I practice what I preach? Um, And if I told you my counselor is, all my clients would probably go to him because he's a fantastic (laughs) guy. (laughs) Um, We need more Gursic counselors out there. Yeah, That's one thing. When I was looking for a counselor, um, I thought just, wouldn't it be nice to have that option, right? Um, So to to answer your question, yes. I do see, like, I do seek help outside of just myself mm-hmm. and it is necessary to tend to that burnout.
0: You just mentioned Gorsik counselors. What, is, what does being a Gorsik add to you being a counselor? Does it come up in conversations with clients? Does it assist you when you're helping your client?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question again because what comes to my mind instantly is your, your sroop, um, like let alone all the gyan that you have as, as a Gursik mm-hmm. uh, being a big source of help, I feel like the first initial contact of especially many Aparne clients seeing you, Maharaj is giving you this through where you instantly get respect. Mm-hmm. You see a gursik and go, this person to some level has their stuff together. Yeah, It almost entails that there must be some sort of Rhet, something they're doing to better themselves in the world, because that's what they've signed up for. Mm-hmm. So automatically, I respect this person. I'm interested in what they have to say, mm-hmm. and you have that kind of clientele coming, saying, "You know, I've come here and I've chosen you because you're a good sick, and I know Siki has this treasure, and I want to learn about it." Yeah. Right. And and you, you know you would think like ethically, you know, you're not supposed to impart your own religious beliefs on someone mm-hmm. even if you do think you'll do well but that's to me i found the opposite people are coming because they already have an existing foundation of sikhi is coping mm-hmm. they want to just expand that that's beautiful and yeah. i get to have the time of my life talking about sikhi at my job not many people get to say they do that yeah and i'll forever be grateful for that
0: that's amazing um wow i've never thought about it that way i i think you bring up a really good point that counseling may be one of those very few um, professions that allow you to do that because thinking from the perspective of a law student the law is the letter of the land and you can't deviate too much from it mm-hmm. you can offer different perspective but a lot of that isn't rooted in that um spirituality sikhi etc mm-hmm. um uh, amazing i i think that just opens up counseling as a profession because a lot of the conversations also tend to be what's an ethical enough profession to join as a Gursik. yeah and sometimes those aren't easy to find mm-hmm. but I'm just realizing now that the the boundaries of being a counselor uh, allow you to, to have an ethical and also participative kind of um, career as a Gursik. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been through what's been your um, the ups and downs of the job, burnout, um, but also being able to help. Thinking back to when you were in first-year undergrad, if you now were able to have a conversation with first-year undergrad Barambi, is there any piece of advice or lesson that you'd want to give him?
1: <laughs> the first thing would be join the SSA faster. <laughs> a Fair moment. enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, get to it. Don't waste any time. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> career-wise.
0: It doesn't have to be career-wise either. Yeah, I guess, it, I guess
1: it doesn't, right? Yeah, um, it, it does naturally come to me because given the journey I've told you about, about going through all these kind of different paths. Yeah. I would just advise myself to know that it's okay to try different things and it's okay to be scared of them mm-hmm. and it's okay to do them while being scared. There's nothing wrong with that. The consequence or the uh, thing that you think is going to happen isn't as bad as it seems, mm-hmm. right? Because that, that anxiety can really get to you. It can really prevent you from so much potential. And my advice to, I guess, that that younger self would be to, to know that, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. Mm-hmm. You can do these things and it's okay.
0: Very interesting. Did you have, how were the fear levels when you were making those decisions? Um, and how did you decide that overcoming them would be um, more beneficial? It would outf- it would outweigh the fears that you had.
1: Mm-hmm. I think those fear levels were near all time highs.
0: Really? Wow.
2: G-
1: yeah. Just because. The There's a lot I- at stake. There is. That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say. Uh, yeah, this is not just. Picking between two ice cream flavors. If anyone knows me that's listening to, to this, they know that I'm an extremely indecisive person. Mm, I once spent like 45 minutes at a 7-Eleven trying to pick between two chocolate bars. It's nice. bad. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should talk to my counselor about that one. But um, it, what I was going to say is that the the way I felt like I overcame that kind of fear and indecisiveness was the Sangatha around me. It was fortunate enough to have people that were very encouraging and discouraging. Hmm. So if I had, I had friends who raised their eyebrows when they said, I'm going to be an accountant. And, it's a, and that was a good thing, I think, because they realized that you, you should think about this again, right? It's yeah. okay to, to, to make a calculated guess here. You don't have to plunge into something on an impulse. It's mm-hmm. kind of what I did. Um, but that sangat really shaped me. I was very fortunate to have that. I would say that's kind of the number one thing. And the other thing was just allowing myself that future foresight. You can think about 30 years ahead in time Mm -hmm. and think about, am I going to be happy? That answer can be, I don't know. But give yourself a shot. Give yourself an opportunity to think about that. Um, You don't know what's going to come out of it. It might just be that last push you need for the leap of faith.
0: Interesting. We've we've explored your past, now thinking forward a little bit, where do you see yourself in about five years?
1: Mm. I see myself in the same place, being meaning continuing to do the work that I do, mm-hmm. um, continuing to enjoy it, uh, but also scaling it a little bit, of course, not only in terms of my own business and my clientele, mm-hmm. but just allowing others to see that this is a great opportunity a great career like like i said how i'd love to see other go to six um, be counselors mm-hmm. i see myself being an advocate for those younger six and anyone in general They do don't have to be six i suppose mm-hmm. but i think there is a there's something special about them being go to six because seeing kind of my own journey and how it's gone such like hand in hand what i do i just would love to see how other people put their spin on it, their own interpretation of what they have to offer. Mm -hmm. Because I know for a fact it'll be way more than what I have. So so I kind of see myself trying to advocate for that. And hopefully something comes out of that.
0: The scaling part of your business, I brought up another question. What does scaling as a clinical counselor look like Um, in terms of, you only have so much time to speak with so many clients. Yeah. So, what does scaling a business look like? Is it adding on more counselors to your team? Is it just expanding the client base? What does that look like?
1: Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there that there's a limitation of how many people you can see in a day, right? Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> so scaling does involve, you know, expanding your clientele, maybe making it full-time work. I I think I forgot to mention that I also work at a non-profit with refugee and immigrant clientele. Amazing. Um, So I I split that work with my private practice. Mm -hmm. But uh, the scaling could look like growing your clients. It could look like moving up into kind of a higher position in terms of supervision. Mm -hmm. So it's not limited to clientele, but supervising other counselors. It could look like scaling your education. So specializing in different modalities. Um, There's a couple I have in mind that I'd like to further kind of expand my knowledge base with. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and it could also, like you mentioned, uh, mean collaborating, having a team of counselors under kind of a same value set or mission goal mm-hmm. and making that a little bigger. So there, there are opportunities out there.
0: And does full-time counseling, is that a nine-to-five or does that go beyond that eight-hour slot?
1: Um, if you're working for yourself, it, it can really be what you like it to be. Okay. Um, the nonprofit I job job that I currently work at is a nine to five mm-hmm. uh, there's other departments within that organization that do a little bit more of a um, fit the client's need schedule mm-hmm. which could look like a kind of like a later start like a 12 to eight yeah. weekend work um, usually because that's when people are more free that kind of scared me in the beginning mm-hmm. but I'm working Saturdays now and I like it because I figured, I finally figured out that I have nothing better to do on a Saturday morning or afternoon. And it's a nice realization.
0: Better than the rock climbing.
1: Yeah, better than that. That's for sure. That, that my, my ankle would attest to that because that's how I rolled it. But uh <laughs> um yeah, it, it it can be kind of uh what you want it to be in terms of schedule. In the beginning you might find you don't have that flexibility mm-hmm. just to accommodate the client's needs, but I know counselors that work in the daytime have full caseloads and a wait list. So anything's kind of possible here.
0: Awesome. So we're we're heading towards the end of today's episode for the podcast. Uh, We like to end off every podcast with what we call the random five. Mm -hmm. And this is where I'll just ask you five totally random questions just so the listeners can get to know you better. Um, So the first one is, what is your favorite book?
1: My favorite book, okay. Two come to mind. So I I'm very hesitant to call this a book, but the Japji Gisab Stiak by Santeja Jasenji is one that comes to my mind because it's only forty pages. It's oh, very okay. small, but it's very dense. Like reading each body of that had me thinking for days. And I think it's essential to obviously understand Japji Sab, you knit know, the name mm-hmm. as much money as you can. But um, that book, I feel like everyone should read that once. It has some very interesting insights. Uh, The other one that's non-sikhi related that just comes to mind, it's not my favorite, but it's just present with me now, is uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Um, Just for essential communication skills, Mm -hmm. uh, it'll take you a long way in life. (laughs) Really? Um, Yeah, and it's an easy read. And it's filled with lots of stories and examples, so it's not dry, in my opinion. So yeah, I, I would say that that's up there.
0: I've had that on my shelf for I think a year and a half now, but I haven't read it. Oh yeah. So maybe maybe, maybe I'll move that. Up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, very interesting, because Benit Singh also mentioned <laughs> that the Japji Sabstik by Sante Ji was one of his top choices. Oh really? As well. So maybe maybe it's a BC thing. I gotta look into that. I gotta look into that. Maybe it is. Next question is: What is your favorite quote and or Bani Pankti?
1: Well. This this is a tough one. Oh man.
0: It always is. <laughs> yeah.
1: Jeez. I can't get can you really pick ah. Um I I would say Japji Sahib in general. Okay. That's good. I guess that's a bit of a bias there. So my, my book is the favorite one there too. Um one one uh, that's helped me and I felt like helped clients a lot is a uh, one from Guru Gobind Saji Maharaj. The idea that Maharaj is advising by nandlaji to look forward, mm-hmm. whatever uh, seeds that you've planted in the past have been planted. You can just look beyond that now. It's okay. And in terms of kind of the hurdles to accessing resilience, I think that's so crucial, that reminder, mm-hmm. especially when your guru is saying it. exactly, It hits way harder yeah um so that's one that that resonates with me
0: yeah that's sure. a, that's just rooted in your entire practice and is key too a mm-hmm. lot of um we we fail to realize that so much of barney is so relevant but it just it, you just got to take that leap to actually explore it to find punkty like i hadn't heard that punkty before but um that's beautiful uh next question is what is one of your weird quirks
1: um weird quirks well wow. spoiled for choice here <laughs> um for some reason, whenever I am talking on the phone, I can't sit still. I have to be walking. Is that's that, a lot is, of us. <laughs> is, that, is, is that is that okay? I just
0: recently learned that that's a very common thing. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I don't know why.
1: Yeah, I know. Like My job is to sit and talk to people, but I have yeah. no temptation to walk up and walk around. If I'm on the phone, I can't sit still. I'm really glad that you normalized that because <laughs> I thought it was a problem, to be honest. I was just, can't, I can't do it.
0: Interesting. Uh, next question is, if you could meet anyone in history, who would it be?
1: Okay, so I feel like, obviously, Gurusaiv is going to be everyone's answer. <laughs> yeah. So just knowing that, you know, and that's not a out, of course, but I'm just going to challenge myself to think if it was beyond Gurusaiv, then it would be six, But... Other than kind of prominent Sikh figures, I would say it would be my Dadaji, just because I've never met him before. Mm -hmm. He passed before uh, I was born, um, just to see what what he's all about. Heard a lot about him. Must be an interesting guy. Um, But, like, of course, if I had the choice, it's going to be... Guru Golden Singh Ji and many many other good six. So this, that would take that's a yeah. whole other podcast on its own. Oh, anyway. That's fair.
0: <laughs> and the last question is: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: My biggest pet peeve? Um, I don't know, man. I I think I think it might be um, <laughs> it's ironic. But a one-sided conversation. Now, I don't say that in the t- in the in the context of counseling because it's a very different way that you're approaching that. Mm-hmm. When you're having when you're meeting someone for the first time, I feel like if they're only invested in talking about things about themselves and they don't lend the opportunity mm-hmm. for someone else to share, it raises some questions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a little bit of a pet peeve. I feel like I'm going to regret that as saying as a counselor. <laughs> but I've said it now <laughs>
0: um, before we end off today is there anything that you want to leave with our listeners
1: um, I think one thing that's come off from our conversation that I felt really important was um, that idea that you know we need more Gursic Councils out there and for anyone who's listening to this that might have some reservations or some fears uh, I just really hope what I've shared in some way contributes to you fulfilling, even considering that. That would be more than enough. And um, I'm grateful for this opportunity. So thank you so much for this, this a wonderful conversation.
0: Awesome. So thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open on this third season of the Experience Hickey podcast. Um, to all listeners, we'll be releasing more episodes as they come in. But this entire season is dedicated towards exploring different professions that hopefully many of you will pursue. Hopefully, this episode answered a lot of questions about clinical counseling and just the practice in general, that um, everyone's journey isn't necessarily always a straight line, and that that could end up being a very good thing. So, again, thank you so much, Param V. We'll end it off here. <laughs> You've been listening to the Experience the Key Podcast.